Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. The podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, technology. and particularly the bits in between. And welcome to this episode of 1202, the Human Factors Podcast, with me, your host, Barry Kirby. As many of you will know, my area of expertise, or I guess my area of comfort when we're talking about human factors, is really the, the defence and the, the future technology sector. But after taking the challenge of, of the Institute's president this year at the Ergonomics Conference to go and look at something new, then I spent a significant amount of time in the uh, in, in the health sector of listening to all sorts of arguments around safety one and safety two and, and all these sort of things that really give me an, an insight into how clinicians and other experts within the health domain are really trying to solve some of those um, some some of those human factors problems within the domain, but I always found it find it quite surprising that an organisation or you know um, an entire sector that is based around making people better still seems to struggle with the fact that we're dealing with people. So armed with some of those insights from the conference and some follow up discussions I've had on Twitter and face to face and things like that. I was really drawn to um, to Peter Brennan, who's been tweeting with significant passion um, about the impact and engagement of human factors upon his part of the healthcare space. So I'm really delighted um, that when I reached out to him um, and asked him if he would come and join us, he's responded positively and is here today. Uh, so welcome, Peter, and thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Barry. It's uh, it's an honour to be part of your uh, your podcast. Thank you, um, and it's really great to have you here. So, before we get stuck into the main topic around looking at um, human factors in healthcare, it'd be great to find out a bit more about you. So, could you tell us a bit more about what your current role is and really what you do on a day to day basis? Uh, yeah, sure. So I'm a uh, NHS surgeon uh, based on the south coast in Portsmouth. Uh, I have an interest in in head and neck cancer. So so I basically treat everything from there to there, which includes skin cancer, uh, salivary gland uh, tumours, uh, mouth cancer, throat cancer, uh, tumours of the jaws, um, and of course it's a confined space. A lot a lot going on in that space. A lot of nerves, a lot of lot of functions and things. Um, so if we take parts away then we often have to rebuild or reconstruct so part of my role is to is to is to reconstruct as well we can take um, bits of skin bits of muscle bits of bone from one part of the body with their little arteries and veins and then we use microsurgery um, to reconstruct so um, a fascinating uh, fascinating specialty and um yeah, really enjoy it. So that so that's my day job. Uh, I have a I have a personal chair uh, in recognition of my education and research activities, um, and I guess the human factors is uh, is very much a hobby. I I would I would describe it. And as I've said to you before, I feel very much an amateur in this in this area. Um, it's just an interest that I have. Uh, as I say, become very passionate about it over over the years. Just just trying to make a difference, reducing error, uh, and improving experience for for health healthcare teams. I just find that entirely fascinating. The way you do way you describe what you do in terms of um, you've got a very specific space, I guess, in terms of you know that that um, neck up. But the but you're right, the intricacies involved in that, and the way you just talk about it with sort of almost casual aplomb is brilliant. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, it's 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 uh, it's something that uh, you know takes years and years of training to get there. And I think um, I would never get complacent, Barry. So every operation I do, you know, I may have done it three, four, five hundred times. Um, but it's it's an individual patient there. I treat patients as if they're members of my own family. So so I always go that extra mile. And I guess that's that's something we can talk about with engaging a checklist, for example, WHO World Health Organization checklist. You know, despite engagement with those errors, still continue to happen. Wrong site operations, wrong operations, even on the wrong patients. Um, so, you know, really, really important. Uh, uh, yes, it might sound um, a little bit uh, just what you describe, but it isn't like that at all. It's uh, really intricate, really caring about the patient and optimizing uh, my performance and that of the team to hopefully give the best possible outcome for for patients. It is. It's. It's. I guess it's one of them definitions of a professional is somebody who makes something that is truly complicated truly intricate look and sound easy um and i just i just find that whole um you know talking to the likes of yourself and your colleagues how you can um 
the, the way that you sort of talk and engage with it in you get to the nitty-gritty of issues whereas um you know where we look at it for, as an amateur base it's gone like well crikey where do you even start so you, you talk I about something like that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah um, definitely so you talked mm. about your engagement with, with human factors and i think um Yes, where you describe yourself as an amateur, I think in that respect, I think we all describe ourselves as amateurs um, in many ways because um, human factors is still a young. Um, so it was in fact it was recently described as a teenage field, um, uh, the teenager in, in in amongst other disciplines. Um, but we are all still learning all the time. So what what initially sparked your interest in human factors and and how you could apply it? Um, so it was. It, uh, it was a retired airline pilot, funnily enough, who had a um, horrible, horrible cancer. And uh, one of his friends uh, was a training captain um, for BA, subsequently moved to EasyJet. And he always wanted to be a surgeon, and I always wanted to be an airline pilot. <laughs> and uh, uh, he used to visit the patient regularly, and we just we started getting chatting and um he said oh i'd love i'd love to come into theater and so i facilitated that got him into theater he subsequently got me on the simulators at, at heathrow and gatwick as well which was amazing um but just offered some offered some things so we were operating i think a five six hour case which until he he started uh, coming in uh, i would i would do that um barry non-stop you know mm. and I think about three hours in, he said, oh, have you thought about taking a break? No, no, of course not. Why do I need to do that? And um, so over three or four visits, um, little little things just started chipping away and we did take the breaks. The communication improved, the crew resource management improved uh, and the dynamics of the team and the morale just totally changed um, just literally over, over a few weeks. And I... Uh, and I was amazed, actually, and I thought my own performance had improved. Uh, my operating time had reduced, even, even though I'd taken a break halfway through. Um, and I guess the rest is history. I started writing a bit about it, doing a bit of reviews. Um, then we started looking at examiners, uh, so Royal College of Surgeons examiners and repetition and boredom and fatigue and all those things. Um, and I guess, you know, it's just, it just spiralled from there, really. And um, wonderful to work with some great real human factors experts and ergonomics people that um that i can i can i can engage with i can i can work with i can use if you like and vice versa um so it's it's been a it's been a fantastic fascinating journey and i still feel like an amateur you know i just i just feel it's a hobby hobby to me i don't get paid <laughs> anything for any of the hf stuff i do uh, it's all in my own my own time and free for the nhs so um um, but at the end of the day, Barry, I think it's uh, thinking of myself as a patient or a member of my family. Uh, what can we do in healthcare to uh, to improve safety um, uh, and team performance? That's so, we'll get onto back into the human factor stuff in in a second. But as you said, you you go through an awful lot of training, you go through an awful lot of um, different hurdles and stuff to get to where you are today. Can you just? Give us um, an idea about what's been your position, what sort of what what your career path has been. Oh, right. Okay. So so my my O levels were were fairly mediocre. My A levels weren't weren't particularly good. Um, so I um, I went into dentistry first because in those days it was actually easier to get into dentistry than it than it was medicine. Uh, these days I think it's probably the the other way round because uh, you know dentistry is seen as a um, for well being and and things. You know it's. Uh, it's, e it's easier on work-life balance and so on. Um, so then, halfway through dentistry, I thought, "Oh, you know what? I really want to be want to be a doctor." And um, so, worked really hard, uh, um, picked up some honours and prizes and what have you, uh, and then subsequently uh, went. Um, back to medical school, had to do the whole five years of medical training, uh, and then I did two years uh, in surgery, basically sort of learning learning general surgery, um, a little bit of orthopedics, uh, and then specialised in our in our specialty of, of oral and maxillofacial surgery. Um, and then halfway through that, I had a had a research inkling, so I did an MD, which is uh, a research higher degree. Um, MD stands for Doctor of Medicine, so it's a two year um, a two year thesis, which is unsupervised as opposed to a PhD, which is supervised. Um, and that was in cancer biology. Really enjoyed that, um, and then became a consultant about uh, about eighteen years ago now. So uh, where's uh, where's the time gone? And I think it's a little bit like driving. You know, you qualify, um, and then you only really start to learn learn the skills and judgment and when to operate and when not to operate as as a consultant, really. So 
you've obviously picked up your specialism and um, become deep specialist in your um, your area. How? What influenced that decision about going down to that route? And I'm not even trying to pronounce it. I tried to pronounce it last night to my wife. And, yeah, it just it just doesn't roll off the my, tongue for the, me. My mother calls it maxi maxi facial. And I think I think Barry, <laughs> I think I think the title probably needs to change. Um, maxilla or maxillo uh, means jaws, and obviously right. facial. And I think I think we should we should be called head and neck surgeons, uh, and perhaps merge. Uh, I mean, we work a lot with ear, nose, and throat. Uh, colleagues that do the voice box and the back of the throat and things as well and we do we do a lot of collaborative work together um so i think the title is is a little confusing people still uh, don't quite know what we do um but i think you know having having done medicine and qualified and i and i absolutely love general surgery and i thought you know i'm gonna i'm gonna go into vascular surgery perhaps um and then an opening came up a registrar training uh, program came up on the south coast uh, and I thought I'd apply for that just to, just to get a bit of experience at interview, really. Um, and I got and I got that post. And um, so almost, I suppose it's fate. If you if you believe in fate, uh, fate yeah, fate yeah. took a hand. And um, we really enjoy the specialty. It's a it's a lovely. You know, we do everything from cancer to uh, facial trauma, smashed up faces, uh, broken jaws, noses, cheekbones, and what have you. Uh, lacerations, um, neck lumps. Uh, the salivary gland pathology is is really fascinating. There's about fifty or sixty different tumors in the saliva glands, yeah. um, different different types. So it's a, a really complicated area. The neck, particularly, so many structures go, going through the neck. Um, so it really tests one's one's surgical prowess, I guess. And uh, you know, really really enjoy that. Mm. That's really cool. I just lo- I love the way that you talk about it with, with such passion. Um, oh, I love it. Love yeah. it. Yeah. Um, obviously, we we come into the end or so. Um, maybe the end of this phase of of, of COVID nineteen, the, the the pandemic. Have, how have you found working during that time? I mean, I, I assume that um, that you were um, still working all the way through, and um, given the uh, domain that we're talking about, um, how did you find that? What was different? What was what did you find challenging? Uh, so our our operating, I think, stopped for about a week or ten days while. While people were just getting their head head around around COVID, and my own practice, uh, as I mentioned, is mainly cancer related. So that so that didn't really stop. And I think I think the terror, Barry, if I'm honest with you, the terror of going into an operating theatre, putting on the full the full protective equipment and the uh, the visor and the FFP3 mask, and not quite knowing what you're dealing with. It was it was almost like uh, for me, going into a theatre and there's some alien there, and you and you can't you can't see it. You know, it was a terrifying experience. Mm. Um, and then, of course, um, the death started coming. There were some there were some surgeons who uh, who died from COVID, uh, ENT surgeons around the country, and of course that hits the news, and you're and you're suddenly thinking, golly, is this is this is this going to be me? You know. Mm. Um, and then I think the human factor, some, some of the issues started to come into play, like wearing those FFP3 masks, uh, instructions perhaps not being heard and understood, um, body language and reading facial expressions. Uh, so, we, so we've done quite a lot of work around, around that uh, and published on that as well. Um, and, then, and then perhaps some of the other things that you, you hadn't really thought of, or certainly I hadn't thought about. So, so virtual uh, online meetings, virtual exams, for example, virtual conferences, um, and trying trying to get one's head around around that as well. So, so that's another area that we've that we've applied HF to and sort of published quite extensively uh, around that to try and help help our colleagues uh, um, get better experiences uh, online. So, um, um, so both the clinical and the and the ramifications. Uh, COVID hasn't gone away, and of course now we've got. We've got monkeypox that seems to be uh, yeah. uh, spurting up. Yeah. So, I guess there is there anything um, around the COVID nineteen that, that the ways of working there that you actually um, thought actually that's made us work better. I mean, from my perspective, it's things like you know not having to travel everywhere for meetings and being able to utilize you know technology like this to to do it. But is there anything from your perspective that actually has been actually that this has been for, for, for quite a traumatic experience has been quite a, a, a significant win? Yeah, yeah, I think um, I think team working has become even more, more apparent. Um, 
and as I mentioned just a minute ago, uh, effective communication. So, so, so making sure that your that your message is heard and understood by the by the team, um, using using repeat back and so forth, um, taking taking those regular breaks and actually looking after uh, ourselves and the wider team and actually getting people looking out for you. That's uh, that's something that we we seem to have developed. So I think du- during the pandemic, um, um, huge amounts of, fa- um, of sort of tiredness and fatigue on an individual and an NHS basis, uh, but coming out of it, so, so many lessons learned. Uh, and I think the NHS is stronger as, as a result. That's really good to hear the fact that, I mean, was, that was something that was really apparent during the recent ergonomics conferences that nobody seems to have, um, certainly in the research field and, and this type of thing, is sort of stepped back and said, you know, COVID will get through it, blah, blah, blah. There's been a whole dr- bunch of, right, this is this is significant. What do we learn from about this going forward? And therefore, how can we prove that, pre- improve ourselves as, as a result, which I think is fantastic. Um, we're just going to take a quick break and then we're going to go uh, come back and really have, have that more ch- uh, generic chat about um, human factors within healthcare. So we'll we'll be right back after this. You are listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. We wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you for your support. You can help further by rating us through your podcast provider, sharing us through social media, and telling your friends and colleagues. Let's work together in raising awareness of the value in putting users at the center of what we do. And welcome back. I'm here, here with Peter Brennan to talk about the application of human factors within healthcare. Um, so, Peter, what do you think at, at that high level? What are the issues around human factors in healthcare from from your perspective? Um, well, I think I think they're multifactorial. There's um, there's a whole, there's a whole culture uh, issue with um, um, healthcare, and in, in you know there, ha- there has been a blame culture in a sense, and uh, people people feel uneasy about speaking up as um, as opposed to um, a just culture, which we're certainly aspiring to, and um, the. Uh, uh, organizations such as the care quality commission um and government uh say that we should we should have a um have a just culture and those of you who don't know what that means it's um it's basically yes we're all accountable for our individual actions um but um unless you go to work wanting to cause harm which which sadly uh, a minority do and you'll and you'll be aware of um Harold Shipman and Patterson was a was another one a surgeon um when error happens, uh, uh, we need to be looking at learning lessons rather than apportioning um, blame. So I think I think that's a, a big issue uh, in healthcare, and that and that may well take a generation to change. If if I'm honest with you, uh, and people just don't don't feel able to speak up because they're worried about repercussions, they're worried about their own careers, what might happen, and so on. So if we're going to go into that then, and um, if anybody's wanting to hear more about Just Culture, then there is a, a previous episode in the back catalogue that we talk about a bit about Just Culture, which I'd thoroughly recommend, obviously. Um, but the, I guess for me, where I, where I struggle with this, and I, we sort of mentioned it right really early on, is healthcare, the, the healthcare system is, it's all about people. Um, it's yep. about making people better um, or in, people in less pain and, and, and things like that. But when we see these things going on uh, within within the healthcare system, um, it seems to be it seems to forget people are people. Um, you know, we all have our foibles, we all have our own characteristics. We we forget things. We um, we, we we seem to we you know we, we we just seem to forget that. Is that why is it so difficult to to get this implemented? Is it just a UK thing, or is it is it worldwide, or what? What's your thoughts on that? No, I mean I've um, I've spoken and been invited all all over the world, so as far away as New Zealand, Asia, uh, Taiwan, the US, Canada, and so on, and it and it seems to be the same issues, Barry, all um, all over. Um, I think I um, I think for me, and perhaps this is where where I might I might differ in my own understanding of human factors compared to the human factors experts and the ergonomics um, experts that, that talk about systems and what have you. And yes, systems are really, really important and things, but 
uh, for me, the clue's in the title. And so as uh, as humans, um, all of us are, we, w- we work both as individuals and as part of the wider the wider group. Um, and the NHS is an enormous machine. It's I think it's the biggest employer in the in the UK with with 1.1 million million people. Uh, it is it is under resourced. I mean, let's be let's be honest. Uh, um, uh, you know, people people go off sick, and and the the service carries on. Um, you know, you you would never have that, for example, in in aviation. If um, if one or two cabin crew go off sick, then then the flight's cancelled unless yeah. unless they can be replaced. Um, so. Uh, um, uh, you know, you cannot compare aviation and the NHS, of course, but it's a it's an enormous machine, and I think sadly um, managers and and others look at look at numbers. So they look at the number of patients waiting, or the uh, or the number of patients that need to be seen in a clinic, ra- rather than rather than that human element and uh, and the fact you ha- you have to break um, um, you know break bad news and tell patients they have a cancer. And so on, and um, you can't you can't do that in two or three minutes. You know that mm. takes half an hour, for example, to do that. Um, so it's it is a people thing, very much as you've said, Barry. I think, and um, but just such an enormous uh, organisation, and there's going to be different areas within within each of it. So so for example, in surgery, we have we have teams. We often work with different members of the team, different anaesthetists, and so on, uh, and coming together quickly to form a cohesive and safe uh, team and i think that's an area where we can learn a lot from other high high reliability organizations um and i think you only have to look at the rail industry i mean your your own defense uh, organizations and things they are highly safe highly reliable organizations if you look at healthcare, for example, uh, it's called a high reliability organization but one in 20 hospital admissions has some form of error Right. Of those one in 20, another one in 20, so that's one in 400 admissions, has a serious medical or surgical error. And most of those errors are preventable by uh, HF application and, and understanding some of the many things we talk about. So I think putting yourself in now as a patient, if you come to see um, a consultant in a hospital, Barry, you have about a one in 400 chance of having a serious serious medical or surgical error. And and that's really scary statistic, isn't it? That's uh, that's terrifying. <laughs> I, I was going to, I haven't <laughs> quite heard it like that before and I am mm. now terrified. You're right. Yep. I yep. mean, I've got to admit the, um, after we'd had the conference this year, I then went into, into hospital just for, uh, to get some blood taken, so a blood test. And and it wasn't till it had sort of been highlighted in these discussions that, that we'd had that I realised just how much um, human factors needs to play a part. Because I mean, just taking from a simple example of uh, walking into the hospital and knowing I had to go and uh, go to the uh, phlebotomy area, um, I had no way of knowing where to go. Um, there was no. If you knew, if 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 you're um, in and around the hospital all the time, presumably you will know where to go because it's your it's your thing. But mm. for me, who d- doesn't go in very often, um, and, and even less if I can help it, then um, there was no simple way of working out, you know, A to B. Happily, my wife was with me; she knew where to go. But then you even got to the door, and there was like mil- literally, like so many signs on the door saying, "Do this, do that, do this, do that, do that." I was like, I had no idea wait, in which order to read them, which order to do, which was most mm. important, which was just there for the staff, which was just for me. And even, so, just from that perspective, I was like, "Wow." There is so much information <laughs> overload. There is so much yeah. going yeah. on. But none of it was malicious. None of it is nasty. People are just trying to do their job. But I think, as you've highlighted, it's so, such a complicated organisation um, yeah. that I've got a massive amount of respect for it. But I also just want to kind of get hold of it and shake it a bit and, and yeah. do stuff, which, I mean, from the work that you're doing, you seem to be doing that. Well, I think I think if I'm honest with you, and firstly, can I can I just ask you and the audience, um, how do you feel? How do you feel when you go into that hospital waiting to have your blood test or your CT scan? You know, most of us will be scared, mm-hmm. apprehensive, the fear of the unknown, worried, uh, concerned about what the results might be. So you have all those elements. Uh, on top of your normal um, thinking process, and we t- we talk about bandwidth as well, and you know things, and you could, you've probably only got a few five to seven things you you can think of. So so having that fear, uh, for example, does does change. And only only today, I was I was um, breaking some bad news to to a family, um, and one of the family members became extremely aggressive towards me, and. Um, 
and um, you know, of course, I'm never going to never going to become aggressive back to them. Yeah. Uh, it was all about calming the situation down. And afterwards, they they apologised and said, "Look, I'm so sorry." It's like, no, no, you don't need to be sorry. I understand how you feel. You know, you're anxious and you're worried and what have you. And um, and yes, so um, so I th- I think Barry, the key to this is is working with experts uh, like yourself, um, but also working with with us. You know, as as uh, healthcare providers and deliverers, because we understand the dynamics of um, surgical team working or mm. uh, or medical team working or phlebotomy working. Uh, we might not understand the systems processes and system design, but uh, but that's where we come together. And actually, sort of coming together, you um, you kind of get that synergism. So I bring a little bit of expertise, you bring a huge amount of expertise. But putting us together, we achieve just so just so much more. And that I think is where is where the future uh, lies. Um, I mean, they're talking about having human factors experts in uh, in every hospital or human factors champions. Yeah. Um, all the hospitals that I that I speak to, there uh, there isn't anyone uh, in post as yet uh, and whether that person is a human factors expert or an ergonomics or uh, a clinician or probably what you need is both actually mm. that's what i would suggest and so you you have that fertile uh, ground between us yeah you almost want the um because say i was to come in and do do that sort of role i would still and if i've seen it actually work quite well where i've got no idea about what i'm walking into be it means you can ask <laughs> stupid questions um yeah. and say right why are you doing this I, I i do find that quite a, a useful tool um to do but you're right you you need that partnership because the the um surgical expert or the clinician expert will you know be able to open doors for you to be able to translate the language because and you, i think yeah and I think, mm. and I think one of the things you know, there's uh, quite a few airline pilots, for for example, that uh, that run their own human factors courses and what have you, mm. and that's absolutely great. But um, but most of them have probably never been into an operating theatre, and so they're kind of translating what what their perhaps or what their perception is. Uh, but they need to be working with um, with uh, surgeons, with radiologists, whatever whatever specialty, um, and actually understand those those issues. Um, so so a lot of these things are translatable, yes. But you need that expertise both in ergonomics and human factors, and us as um, uh, you know deliverers. Well, that certainly feels like the um, the that, that sort of challenge or the the panacea that we need to need to aim for and, and do something. About how do we make that happen um well i think yeah i think we definitely need to make that happen but the so we talked about i guess the negative side of things and it's positive it's positively uh, probably a bit bad to do that because the have you seen where human factors had a positive impact in in your surgical teams um yeah so so i think so i think i mean uh, as i've said to you a lot of my work is probably probably uh, what one might call crew resource management so it's actually managing the team managing the crew um and, and we've we've had so so many um, amazing feedback stories from uh, colleagues that actually do take the break and i i would always say barry you know would you would you drive from london to scotland non-stop and I use that in my HF teaching and yeah. everyone looks around. It's like, no, 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 I'd stop. I stop after three or four hours. It's like, but hang on, but you operate for eight hours nonstop. Yes. Yeah. That's the cult. That's what I've always done. Have you ever thought about stopping? No, no, no. I'm not, I'm, I'm I haven't, I don't need to because that's what, well, uh, please just take, take a break. Just see how you get on. And uh, even, even cardiologists, you know, heart, heart specialists that, that were doing six, seven hour ward rounds um, without, without stopping for lunch and things. And then I've said to them, look, why don't, why don't you do this and actually try it? And the number of emails that have come all from around the world, like, oh, Peter, you're, you're an absolute genius. You know, we took, we took your advice. You know, everyone's so much happier. We're so much more efficient. Um, ward round of the operation was finished much quicker. Uh, and of course, one's performance uh, stay, stays high as well. So uh, analysis and decision-making, you start talking about cognitive performance and so on. Just obvious, basic things. Um, so I think I think people are waking up to that and realizing the, the importance of um, of looking after ourselves. And so I would always use that analogy, you know, the, the oxygen mask on the uh, on the airplanes put your own mask on before helping mm. others optimize your own performance before looking after your patients um and it's, it seems to be getting uh, getting more and more traction um you know, almost, almost on a daily basis actually it's um absolutely incredible so i think 
do correct me if I'm wrong, but there there is or certainly has been almost a um, that hierarchical, um, almost leadership driven um, structure within within the NHS, um, particularly amongst uh, doctors and surgeons like yourself, where. We talk about just culture, but hist- historically, you know, nobody would question, say, somebody in your position, um, and and, th- and that type of thing. So, presumably, that's what yeah. you're trying to change the the ability for people yeah. to shout up and things like that. Yeah. yeah. So, um, culture is is um, uh, I think I think we we mentioned at the start it could it could take a generation to change, couldn't it? Really, but um, that that steep hierarchy. Yes, there has to be hierarchy, of course, mm-hmm. because there has to be a leader, uh, a consultant surgeon, an airline captain, um, you know, head of head of the train or whatever it is. That um, yes, there has to be, but there has to be sufficiently shallow that that anyone can challenge you. And and so for me, I set that up at the brief stage, and I will actually say at the brief, even, even if it's with people we've worked with all the time. Look, please, if you have any concerns, if there's anything you're not sure about, please just stop me, uh, and then we're going to. As long as it's safe to do so, and I haven't, haven't put a hole in a major blood vessel and someone's bleeding out, uh, fortunately that doesn't happen often. <laughs> but um, uh, you know, just just in case your your listeners are going to be wondering who who on earth is this fellow? But um, no, no, no. But ninety nine point nine percent of the time, you can stop, you can step back, um, listen to the concerns or whatever. Um, and I think it's the people that don't do that uh, because because they see themselves on a um, on a pedestal or whatever, you, and that's where one one could run into problems and there's many examples of uh, wrong operations be, being done the wrong kidney was removed um a few a few years ago because a medical student spotted it but felt unable to speak up uh, and in fact they did speak up but they were they were put down by the by the consultant um wrong, uh, the wrong kidney was removed patient died absolutely tragic you know so um so we've published quite a bit about hierarchy, including including in the British Medical Journal, which has a huge, huge readership. Um, so I think I think all of that, and it and it kind of weaves into other areas, which are probably not human factors per se, are they? Things like respect and civility. I don't think they're human factors. They're they're just com- common things that one that one should implement. Um, but have, having that civility to to the rest of the team, having the respect of everyone in the team, so you respect everyone equally, and hopefully then they respect you back, rather than having this hierarchy that I'm only going to speak to another consultant, I'm not going to speak to the cleaner, I'm not going to do this that. That's, that's not a way uh, to build, to build a good team. So, how do you? I mean, I, I would actually, I would argue that they are um, human factors issue because they, they fit within that organisational how you run the organisation. But um, but I fully get that you know different people have have different flavours on that. Yeah. But the um, so how do you drive that sort of behaviour going forward? Then is it just by um, you know um, you setting a good example, or you you know you yeah. you you, you You've already highlighted you talk to a, a lot of people around the world about this. So, is it you evangelising about this, or yeah, um, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. So, so I think I think as as with a lot of human factors, integration um, it's a kind of top-down culture. So, government, um, our regulator, for example, the General Medical Council. I've worked with them. Uh, I've published with the with the regulator, um, and then you've got the bottom up, so the deliverers of healthcare, and you and you kind of meet some somewhere in the middle. One would hope, um, but it's about it's about it's about kind of seeing the change and people people think a lot of this doesn't apply to them because they've never had a problem or what have you um and then i i would always go to them and say well have you asked the team what they think about you or you know what what um you know what their relationship is no no why would i do that it's like well could you could you just go back to your team and say look how do you perceive me Mm um and uh, if people are honest, then sometimes they come back. Oh, oh, he's an ogre, or she's she's difficult, or he's objectionable, or what have you. Um, so, yeah. So I think I th- I think gradual erosion, perhaps um, chipping away. You know, we publish loads. Um, uh, you know, webinars, seminars. Um, we've we've just set up a online uh, human factors course for the Royal College of Surgeons of England. That's just about to go live. Uh, five modules: just culture, threat and error management, situation awareness, uh, effective team working, including hierarchy, uh, and effective communication. So just. I'm just going around knocking on every single door I can, and as I say, this is, this is a great opportunity, Barry, to to you know to talk to fellows and members of your fantastic institution. You know, it's it's um, it's other contact you enough. Yeah, the um, 
yeah, that we need um, more effectively ambassadors like what you're doing. You're you're being you're being that um, um, disciplined ambassador, which I think personally I think is fantastic, and and we need. Um, but more of it. So just do, just don't stop what you're doing. Oh, that's very kind. I mean, I uh, I mean, I do get criticised by by some human factors experts. You know, I've been criticised uh, even even on social media on Twitter about about my PhD on human factors, which again was a was was something I did three or four years ago. And I was I was questioned who my examiners were, um, an airline pilot, professor of surgery, and a psychologist. And it's like, well, they're not human factors experts. Was the response? And it's like, well. Maybe they're not according to your definition, but they are living and breathing and they're working and they understand human factors in healthcare and aviation and what have you. So, um, but as I said right at the start, we need to be working together and valuing each other equally. So I have the utmost respect for you, for you and your colleagues, and hopefully uh, they will have the, sa- the same respect for us as deliverers. And that fertile ground between us, that, that's where we can make a massive, massive difference, I think. No, I, I I couldn't agree more, and I think the more we more we can do in this space, the um, the better. Um, and and we are a broad church. Um, you know, there's nobody ha- nobody holds that one um, thing of being the expert. Um, so I would I would uh, refute that quite strongly. Um, just to change tack slightly, um, obviously, as I said from the off, I'm I'm a big tech geek and I'm, I'm really into things like ai and stuff like that yeah yeah obviously ai and technology is making stronger and stronger incursions into into the healthcare sector um where do you see that impacting what you do and how do you see the influence of human factors evolving in what you do um yeah so i think i think artificial intelligence is is something i don't really understand if i'm honest with you but uh, it's it's being used increasingly to uh, for example look at ct scans and to you know it can rapidly go through ct scans uh, or mammograms for example having having screening mammograms for breast cancer it it can very very quickly assess and give you give you what it thinks is the is the outcome um so i think i think it's evolving um all the time i think it's an exciting area uh, and definitely something that we have to live with and embrace. Um, in terms of technology, um, for me, probably probably one of the greatest technologies in surgery um, is robotics. And um, you know, it is it is absolutely incredible what the what the robot can do. It can, you know, its hand is um, fifteen or twenty times smaller than your hand. You you can turn it to go round and upside down and backwards and forwards and what have you. Um, and the surgery is done uh, using using a console. There's usually um, a surgeon and maybe an assistant. Everything's up on the screen. And the amazing thing, Barry, about this is is that it uses um, it uses the internet. So um, a surgeon could be working in one hospital, and they've taught a surgeon in in another hospital who's subsequently working in Australia, for example. And they run into difficulties, and you know, a quick uh, phone call or whatever, they can then log on to that to that robot remotely. And even though they're on the console work, working in London, they can actively do that operation or help that colleague out i think that is absolutely incredible um and and that and that actually happens you know so that's uh, that's unprecedented isn't it really you know having having that ability to better mm. help a colleague ten thousand miles away without having to fly there and what have you um so uh, yes it does have um limited use uh so so it can't be used for everything there's a lot of neurosurgery for example uh, head and neck surgery it has limited use at the moment but i think robotics is is uh, is absolutely incredible it minimizes um, operative stay it reduces the the incisions and so on um and the outcomes um so much better as well so um um, that for me i kind of wish i kind of wish i was a robotic surgeon sometimes <laughs> um but but actually that does bring the uh, the human factors into play because um, the surgeon um, looks down the console, so they become very tunnel visioned in terms of what they're doing. Uh, you know, look at, looking at the operation and speaking speaking with them, and we're, ju- we're just starting to start up some research now. Um, they become totally unaware of everyone else in the room because they're, mm-hmm. they're looking down this console. So they lose track of time very, very quickly. Um, you know, two, three, four hours can go, could go past and it, and it feels like five or 10 minutes. Um, so having that wider team working, having that, uh, the situation awareness, um, a team looking out for them, you know, looking at the clock, setting that up at the briefing stage, saying, look, when we get to three hours, let's just take a break. And of course, because they're not scrubbed, uh, Barry, as well, they can literally just down tools. Right, yeah. If 
if it's say um, just walk out of theatre, you know, take take a cup of tea or coffee, everyone can relax for a little while, um, come back, and then you've you've optimised your performance again. And I mean, um, little things like I mean, I don't know if you if you know, but um, you know, if you lose a kilogram of body weight uh, due to water loss, so particularly in the summer, um, it was a particular issue with with PPE, of course. Mm-hmm. But if you lose a kilogram in body weight, uh, your analysis and decision making falls by 20%. And of course, that happens so slowly, you don't even know it's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so really slow deterioration. So, so the importance of hydration, of eating, of taking the breaks really, really helps your concentration. Hmm. There is an element there around the, I mean, the robotics thing absolutely fascinates me. And the, uh, there is a slight, I, I do get slightly nervous, which as well, no, having been around the sort of the cybersecurity uh, domain as well of, you know, what happens if somebody hacks it? Um, but fundamentally, the, you're right, the, that idea that um, somebody's doing something, that they run into a problem, that can call up not only just help, but the best help for the, for that position, that role at yeah. that time. And yeah. then they can go into actually, do this, do that, do do the other is is mind blowing, um, and it's it's just so good. Though, I, is there an element there that actually would you going back to like the people people skills, anxiety, and things like that? I guess you want to make sure that um, I don't I, or would you that patients go to sleep before they see the operating theatre if it's just basically covered in robotic arms at that point yeah, i don't know this yeah. it's interesting yeah. isn't it yeah 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 um so so i think there's two things one one is the is the ego side of things and historically there has been has been some big egos in medicine and surgery particularly and there's almost like a hierarchy or there's been a hierarchy of different surgical specialties with with, with some surgeons thinking they're better than others and what have you um so that so that needs to go and that does go in terms of robotics, because if if someone calls you and and you're you're the best person to do it, and you happen to be 200 miles away and you can help them, fantastic. You know, for me, it's all about what's best for the patient. You know, we're here for the patients. We're we're ambassadors for the patient. Patients put their trust, their lives, their their head and neck, their limb, whatever, into our into our hands, and so we have to do everything to give them the best possible outcome. Mm. Um, yeah. No, that that's yeah, that's really cool. And I think seeing you know that does spawn a whole lot of um, issues that would be really worth you know interesting to investigate, like handover and stuff like that. But yep, yep. Um, if you had one human factors wish, you know, something that you could implement tomorrow and just with a click of the fingers, um, what, what do you think that would be? It- oh, um, I th- I think it probably it probably would be just culture across um, across the NHS. And coupled with that, um, safe and effective reporting. So uh, Cicero, I tweeted um, a couple of days ago about Cicero, great Roman orator. Um, I think he was assassinated, though, actually. Um, but, um, <laughs> but, he, but he said that, um, that any, anyone can err, anyone can make a mistake. And, that, and that's absolutely true, isn't it? We make, we make five or seven mistakes every single day, but only a full persistent error. And I think for me, in healthcare, the, the same errors keep on happening time after time after time. So, unlike other industries where where errors happen, you know, mistakes, and um, it, go, it goes around the world as it did with, for example, the um, the seven three seven Max with the, with those fatal things. It goes around the world. The thing um, in healthcare, just the same errors in every single hospital. And part of this is actually due to this this just culture because people feel unable to speak up and are unable to raise concerns and things as well. So, so I think for me. Uh, have, having a just culture, as there now is in in aviation, uh, and I gather from my from my um, uh, from my pilot friends, this has taken all, almost a generation to mm. to implement as well. So we are a long way behind other other organisations. Yeah, yeah, but I, th- I still think that just culture is still. Um, we'd like to think it was a lot more implemented than it is, um, yeah. but I think in all organisations we've still got a um, a long way to go. Because you're right, we still want to. When things go wrong, you still want to blame somebody, um, and fundamentally, it is. Yeah, you 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 want to get you want somebody to be gripped for whatever's gone wrong. Which, you know, but then we I think people do take into the go too far the other way and think well, just culture is a um, you know nobody nobody gets to blame, and, that, and that's not true either. Um, 
just to change gears um, slightly, because I think that's been a really in-depth review around um, the, use, the use of HF uh, within the healthcare sector, though I do feel we could probably go on and talk for an, another couple of hours on this, because I think there's so many different interesting pieces yeah, that but have come up. But that- but that's human factors because because your because your listeners uh, will will be getting to that forty five minute stage, starting to think, hang on, when's this going to finish? You know, I want a break. You know, so you have to you have to think about that as well. So uh, we need to finish. Yeah, no, absolutely. So we'll um, yeah. we'll, yeah. we'll 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 st- we'll start cruising into that with the uh, with the final three questions. So, Brilliant. do you have um, a book or a paper or or anything like that that you go back and use repeatedly time and time again? It could be technical, it could be a fiction book, but is there something there that you that you um, recommend um, to others? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, I think for this for this uh, event then on human factors, um, so I have I have loads of medical books. I've written seven seven textbooks myself actually, and which are, which are widely used. But I think for human factors, uh, the the resource that I absolutely love is the Civil Aviation Authority um, handbook for uh, airline crew. It's called CAP seven three seven, freely available to download and. You could almost replace a lot of a lot of uh, the wording. So if it says airline airline crew, you could actually put healthcare into the majority of that of that book, um, written by Steve Jarvis, who's a who's a fellow of your institution, um, and. Um, I absolutely I love that book. It takes you through analysis and decision making. Uh, it takes you through illusions, um, threat and error management, situational awareness, uh, communication, and so on. And um, I read it, and every time I read it, um, uh, I get I get a new idea, Barry. If I'm honest with you, so so a lot of my ideas come from that mm. from that resource. So if you haven't seen it, uh, please please do have a look. Um, I love it. Oh. In fact, there's a new edition coming. I gather. Oh, well, there you go. You you heard it here first. Um, if you could go back to a, a younger version of yourself, be that, say, 16 or 18, or you pick an appropriate age, what advice, is there a bit of advice you would give yourself that would help you do what you're doing now? Um, uh, I, think, I think work-life balance is really, really critical. And, um, you know, this is, this is someone who's written, what, 700 papers and all these textbooks and things over and above my busy job. So mm. are, you, are you talking to the right person here? But um, I, think, I think, you know, that Nirvana moment uh, came for me um, prob- probably about five, 10 years ago. It's, are you living to work or working to live? Mm. And um, I, think there, I think there has to be perhaps an ele- element of both. But but just the importance of life outside of work, um, quality time with your with your family and friends, uh, recharging yourself, um, the importance of well-being, uh, and so on. And that and that does feed in, I guess, indirectly into into HF as well, doesn't it? If you're if you're constantly doing your emails at eleven o'clock at night and things, you ne- you never really switch off. So so actually having some time away from work, I set up my out of office if I'm if I'm on leave and things. So I'm actually away. Um, I'm not going to reply. To emails uh, and in fact i don't barry i just walk away from that otherwise we become slaves to it and we and we never take that time um to have have the quality family time uh rest and recuperation and just enjoy ourselves really important and unfortunately i've i've been guilty of that throughout throughout my training working long hours doing all this extra stuff that i've i've been doing and still continue to do it i must say but <laughs> yes. Uh, but actually giving myself protected time on the weekends uh friday night for example that's it you know i walk away from work and unless i'm on call that's it you know no um, no work until uh monday not every weekend but uh, as often as i can now, certainly that that friday afternoon around six seven o'clock then there's nothing going to get in between me and my bottle of wine um <laughs> yeah but the no and i think that's really good that whole it's one of these things that I, I I do tell other people. I tell my my staff when I do it. You know, you need to take that you need to take that time off. You need to look after you. But I'm terrible at doing it. Um, so yeah, I see exactly where you're coming from. And even and even you know even with family and and friends and things, you can you can change hierarchies. And I'm not even sure that's the right word to use. But you know you could you can say to your spouse, right? Uh, we've agreed that I'm I'm going to do this, or you're not going to work. Right, this is it, and and um, and actually call it and uh, um, children as well. You know, my mm. my eldest daughter is a uh, is a nineteen year old medical student who who incidentally has started to do some some human factors work in the medical school. It's fantastic, awesome. Um, and she and she will actually um, sort of tell me, right, Dad, 
come on, you've got to stop working now. And it's like, okay, okay. You know, and because I've empowered her, um, then it's like, okay, I'm really sorry. Yeah. Okay. You're absolutely right. Um, that's really important. Go- yeah. That really goes back to what you said earlier about, you know, having that, um, the people around you and having the, the ability to take, uh, to listen and things like that. Yeah. So absolutely. who would you, um, you know, given what you talk about your experience, who do you suggest I interview next? Who would you like to hear me interview? Um, well, you know what? I, um, I think Steve, I think Steve Jarvis, uh, who's, who's the author of that cap 737. Um, he's, he's the HF expert who helps us with the, the Royal College of Surgeons online course. And now he's helping us with a, with a face-to-face, uh, human factors course, which will be coming out early, early part of next year. Um, I think he, he really understands the ergonomics. He understands the systems and things. He said, he says to me that all, all of his work probably every minute there's, there's an airline pilot somewhere in the world use, using some of his uh, systems work and things. So uh, amazing guy. But he, but he really understands um, healthcare and the expertise that we have and um, immensely respectful of us um, as I am of him. So I think, I think he, he would be a great person to get maybe the other side perhaps as, a, as an expert in ergonomics uh, who understands healthcare perhaps as I'm an expert surgeon, if that's the right word, and just with an in, with an interest in human factors. Yes, no, that, <laughs> an amateur. That's um, I shall I shall go and hunt him down. Um, Peter, thank you ever so much for being um, for giving us your insights and your honest appraisal of, of where you think things are today in the uh, in the health sector. Um, I think you do yourself down quite a lot. I, I don't think you're an enthusiastic amateur. You've clearly got a lot of expertise. You've clearly got a lot of experiences that we need to learn from for you. So thank you ever so much for giving us your insight. Well, thank thank you very much. What a, what an absolute on, honour it is. And, you know, um, let's work together on this and, and see and, see and crank things up. It's an um, amazing opportunity, I think. So uh, thank you very much, Barry. Really appreciate it. And thank you for listening and watching this episode. I hope you found it insightful and, and useful. If you want to get in touch with Peter um, around some of the things you've heard today, he's, as he said, he's, he's on um, social media and you can find his details on the 1202.com, uh, 1202podcast.com website uh, where his details are there along, alongside this episode. If you want to fi- help others find this content and other content that we've developed alongside it, there are two really simple things you can do. You can give us a five-star review wherever you're consuming this episode. Um, that's free for you to do and, and and quick and easy. That helps other people find um, it when they're searching for it, um, either th- through their uh, search engines or whatever. Um, secondly, you can tell your friends and colleagues and encourage them to give us a try and see what they think of our content. There is um, a whole range of um, uh, episodes that we do, every, everything from this, from medical content as we're hearing now, um, to just culture, all the way through to the importance of sleep and some of the um, uh, other topics um, well in between of that. But as for now, we'll see you on the next episode of 1202. <laughs> Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us on social media such as Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook at 1202 Podcast. See you next time. And remember, it's more than just common sense.